You're listening to Jepper Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Datta. My guest in this episode is Kent Nurburn. Now, I'm going to tell you about Kent's writing and his work. But before I do that, let me tell you just one thing about Kent. He is one of the most inspiring people I've had the pleasure of speaking with for this podcast. That being said, let me now tell you a couple things about Kent and what you'll be hearing him talk about in this conversation I had with him. Kent is an American writer and artist, having published over 20 works of fiction and nonfiction. He's got a graduate degree from Stanford, a PhD in religious studies and art from UC Berkeley, and about 25 years ago, Kent published Neither Wolf Nor Dog, On Forgotten Roads with an Indian Elder, a book which isn't just a cult classic, but was recently re-released with a 25-year anniversary edition with a foreword by Robert Plant, lead singer of what history has called the greatest rock band of all time, Led Zeppelin. And on top of that, the film adaptation of Neither Wolf Nor Dog, which Kent co-wrote, has become a hit in the indie film circuit across US and Europe. Kent's latest book, Dancing with the Gods, takes readers inside the creative process for a glimpse into the hidden joys and unseen challenges of a life in the arts. In this episode, I asked Kent about the stories behind those facts that I just told you about him. And if you happen to be an artist or a creative person or are considering to write or create something, the last six minutes of this episode contains some really great advice from Kent for how to deal with being a creative person. Also, if you happen to be in Boulder, Colorado this weekend, Kent will be speaking at JLF Colorado on September 21st. Here is my conversation with Kent Nurburn. I had no real interest in or fascination with Native American subjects when I was young. Uh, I was a typical American suburban white kid, a post-war rug rat who uh, grew up with no real relationship to uh, Native American reality. They were a sidebar in my life at all. You know, if they existed at all, we you know, wore feathers on Thanksgiving and uh, shot little bows and arrows uh, with rubber tips, and that was it. But I came across Native America almost by accident that uh, I was training in sculpture, in religious sculpture, actually. And my fascination and actually my passion was in working in trees. I, I liked the idea of working in large tree trunks, not laminated wood, but individual tree trunks. Uh, and I like to work over life size. And I was a great devotee of uh, Donatello, Michelangelo, and Rodin. And though I knew I was in no way that they're equal, uh, their sensibilities fascinated me. But as I worked in, as I continued to work in trees and try to carve figures in trees, uh, they, it became evident that something else was going on other than the aesthetic of just applying an idea or a spiritual value into the wood, the trees started talking back to me. And I don't mean that in any, um, you know, literary or metaphoric sense. They really do have individual characters and individual voices. Each type of tree 
has its own personality. Like I was never a great lover of oak. I was too, it was sort of too military wood for me. When you'd hit it with a chisel, it would sort of go burr, 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 and uh, there, there was a march rhythm to it. And it took sunlight rather than shadow. Whereas I liked uh, nut-bearing trees, like uh, walnut. They were very, they were more lyrical, more feminine. The wood moved more easily. They took shadow rather than light. And so I started to see the difference in individual types of trees. And then there were the individual trees themselves. And I remember one that I worked in that was the saddest tree I'd ever worked in. I didn't like it at all. And you spend six months or so with a, with an individual tree or person or dog or anything, and you soon find that the, you get to know it very well. This tree was a deeply sad tree. It, it smelled bad. Its rings were tight. Uh, it didn't carve well. It had a, a, a punky feel to it. And it just was a very tragic tree. And the trees ended up defining what I could do with them as much as the ideas I was playing, trying to apply to them. And so I started looking around for some aesthetic uh, guidance in what I was dealing with. And none of the people, none of the sort of uh, European models that I'd studied said anything about this. But the one place where I saw people speak of this were the Native Americans. The Iroquois, for example, would carve tree, carve masks from live trees in order to get the spirit of the tree in the carvings. And uh, right. the, some of the Pacific Northwest Coast Indians did the same and would carve in live trees and let the tree grow. And then the face they would carve and it would become part of the tree. And this fascinated me. I said, here are some people that are understand what it is that I'm confronting. And so I continued to work carving as a primary or sculpting as a primary way to make a living. And it's a terrible way to make a living. Uh, <laughs> and so at one point, my, my wife and I had moved up almost to the Canadian border to a small town where she was teaching at a university. And I, I, I wasn't making, you know, if you work in, if you spend six months or a year on a single project, uh, it's not an economically viable situation. So I started looking around for a way to supplement my income, and there was a job open on one of the reservations. It was one of the largest reservations, closed reservations in America, meaning in the, a closed reservation means that it, the land was never divided, subdivided, and sold off to, uh, to European uh, interests. It was held in common by the, uh, by the tribe, and they wanted someone to, do, to teach history. And I thought, well, I can't really teach history because, I, first of all, I don't know their history well. And secondly, I don't want to impose my value system on their way of understanding. So what I did instead was set up an oral history project where the students and I went out into the uh, community, out in the backwoods, and we would uh, interview the elders. And we ended up doing a book out of their stories. And this book became very popular. In, in the Indian community, because no one had really gone out and done this before. And it traveled around the country on what they call the powwow circuit, where there, there are powwows that are held around the country and people travel from one to the other. And it's sort of like a summer a summer event for the native uh, different native tribes to get together. The book that we did was called uh, the uh, To Walk the Red Road. That was a collection of the tribal memories. Mm-hmm. And in the course of traveling around with this or being sent around to various reservations, a man found it, uh, who I called Dan, 
and Dan became, he became interested in this and contacted me through his uh, granddaughter wanting to uh, have me do a book of his thinking. And it really was, uh, you know, and it, it, it was in a way, it became a project of working with him and his ideas to tell the story of the Native experience from the inside. And so in many ways, I, and so what I did is I ended up, he didn't want to be known who he really was because it's not within the Native temperament to raise yourself up. Uh, you, you don't want to speak for everyone else. And so what we agreed to do was to have me use him to put the teachings and understandings of the Native people that I had known into a story. So I wrote Neither Wolf Nor Dog, which was really taking real people, real places, and real events and putting them together into a story uh, meant to open people's minds and touch their hearts. Uh, one man had told me years before when I was doing the oral history project, he said, when I took the kids in to speak to them, he said, you know, always teach by stories because stories lodge deep in the heart. So neither wolf nor dog, the book that came out of the, this is my attempt to be a teaching story about the Native experience, what Native people, how they look at the American historical experience, how they understand life how they understood their core values. And it was really kind of a, it was kind of a miraculous accident in that I kept my own identity as the, you know, as, as the recorder. And I mm -hmm. kept my own emotional response to everything. And I took, I took the non-native reader and walked him or her from their own home in whatever white America or, or non-native America they lived in and walked them into the Native experience and the Native world and handed them over to the Native point of view, mm -hmm. where Dan and his friend Grover and the others spoke of their beliefs. And they spoke about everything from, uh, you know, the, oh, the difference between leaders and rulers to the, how freedom was the most important thing for the European Americans, whereas honor was the most important thing for them. Uh, the difference between their understanding of land as as a sacred uh, living form versus property, which uh, you know, was the way that the Europeans had looked upon it. And it was just a chance to see the world through their eyes and put together into a story of my discovery. So that's really how that book came to be. And from that point forward, I, I learned two things in the course of working. Mm -hmm. in the Native community. And the first one was, and this was independent of anything to do with the, the knowledge I gained about sculpture and, and understanding of aesthetics, but the one was that we had, as a, as a nation, had totally expunged the Native experience from our mm -hmm. historical narrative. Uh, America is a country of optimism. It's a country of progress. Everything can be fixed. This is the model of the American, uh, you know, the American way of life. And here was something that it was a tragic result of our historical expansion and colonialism, and it mm -hmm. couldn't be fixed. And so we didn't want that in our historical narrative. And so it's, it's just basically gone from the teachings uh, right. of American history. And so I saw this 
And the other thing I saw was that there were some very core values that were inhered in the native people that we had, we were missing at our own peril. Uh, the belief that, that there was spirit, everything, a different, broader understanding of family, uh, a different respect for the elders. Uh, and so I said, we have to, well, these are the two elements that I need to communicate. One is that to reintroduce the native experience into the historical narrative. And the other one mm-hmm. is to speak to some of the core values that are worth sharing, uh, that we as a, as a nation need to learn. And so the book became a teaching story around these, and it, it caught fire. It, somehow, you know, I, I didn't know when I did it what I had in my hands. And yet over 25 years, it's proven to be, uh, it's been a life and maybe a culture-changing book. And I never would have expected such a thing, but it's been, you know, it's been a real joy to be part of. And yeah, actually, um, you know, it was published in 94, so it really, in these mm-hmm. 25 years, um, your book has gone from, schools to colleges to communities doing it in in minnesota and south dakota reading it as Mm -hmm. a community to talk about to create that dialogue of connecting the non-natives to the native cultures how Mm -hmm. do you you mentioned in an interview that you know you feel like you were a conduit and you were the bridge between these conversations and these people but personally you know when you go around telling these stories and when you are presenting uh, this book and all this stuff that you've done. What do you think you as an artist have gotten out of uh, talking to people about this story and the stories that you've, you've been enabled to, to tell? Well, there, there've been, well, any number of things that are both, <clears throat> both personal and professional. Uh, personally, I've had some basic values that I, find important sort of ratified by their way of doing things. They, they have very little sense of personal status. Uh, and so there's an egalitarian aspect to the way that they deal with each other. The heads of tribes are very often called by their first name. They're not given honorific names necessarily. They're a, a, this sort of leveling of the experience down to the human is something that that was good for me to see because that's the way I was raised. And, uh, you know, to me, it makes no difference who a person is, where they come from. Mm-hmm. And people, many people say this, but you don't always often get to put it in practice to see a culture that really looked this, this way. And people were honored according to what they did for the good of the community, rather than for their personal accomplishments and status was a, a ratifier for me. Another thing is, uh, and this is this is a personal element, uh, much less fear of death, because for them, uh, death was not a discontinuous event. And they, there's a lot of death in their communities. A lot of people die very young, but they, I like to say that instead of saying someone passed away, they talk about someone having walked on, as if it's right. just a continuous path. Uh, and so those are some things I got out of it personally, as well as the the responsibility as an elder. I mean, I'm getting older now. I'm 70. What do I, 73? Miraculous. I, I just keep waking <laughs> up and getting older. I don't know how it happens. But, uh, but realizing that in America, we've got this notion of the senior citizen, uh, which is, mm-hmm. you're essentially vestigial. But in the Native community, it's looked upon as, uh, life is looked upon as a cycle of the seasons. 
and only the one in the last season has uh, seen all the others and is in a position to speak with a certain amount of wisdom about the preceding seasons. Mm-hmm. So I've taken, I look upon my task at this point in life, not as to hold on to some uh, you know, fantasy of youth or uh, even some sense of importance uh, and centrality so much as to serve as a mentor and a guide uh, to try to take on the role of the elder. So those are some of the, uh, those are some of the personal aspects of what I've gained. But the one thing that I think is very important in terms of what I've been able to contribute with the book is that uh, the native kids need to see not only role models within their own community, but they need to be ratified by someone from the outside. They, mm-hmm. they have so little sense of it, it's such a struggle to have self-esteem when you're when you're a uh, a marginalized culture, and the mm-hmm. kids grow up uh, thinking it's they they get fed a fantasy of what it is to you know the outside world will speak they almost mythologize them they're mythologized or pathologized those seem to be the two roads and roads that we go down in dealing with the native people in America. And they are neither. It's not all pathology. It's not in any way mythology. And so showing these kids that someone from the outside, someone with, uh, with white credentials, uh, I mean, that, that's the nice thing about having, having my credentials is by when I say they have something to teach me, they then are ratified in their own self-identity. Right. But yes, what you have is something that, that we need to learn, we simply haven't been listening. And your job is to learn to articulate from inside your own experience and to share it with the rest of us. So I think that being able to tell the young Native people that they have something important to contribute to American society, that they're not merely a marginalized uh, uh, and almost a forgotten minority group mm-hmm. in American experience, is, is to give them is to give them some internal strength and power. And that's something that by being a non-native writer, I've been able to do. It's been a hard road because uh, so many people, so many non-native writers have tried to exploit native experience. The line I like to use is trafficking in Indian themes for fun and profit. <laughs> and uh, yeah. that's, that's not who I am, not who I want to be. Instead, I want to be someone who stands in the background and raises them up and lifts them. It puts them forward and says, you have something essential to give to us and we need to learn it. And please learn it from your own tradition and share it with the rest of us. Mm -hmm. One of the, you you mentioned this thing about the, you know, you should teach through stories and something, you know, just uh, while I was, reading up on the work that you've done a story that I I didn't expect to uh, find out was that the Led Zeppelin has had a connection with this book, you know, Robert. Uh, Ah, yes. Could you, Uh, yeah. Could for our audience, could you just tell us how he has, how he helped bring this book to the UK and how did that little connection come about? How did that story start? This is great. Yeah. One, it's one, this is one of my favorite uh, favorite little occurrences. Uh, you know, the, you know, 
you get contacted very often. When, when you put yourself out in some public sense, you get contacted by people, some of whom are insane, some of whom are angry, are angry, some of whom are very gracious. And you, mm-hmm. you don't know what, an email, a phone call, uh, occasionally a person will land, knock on your door and say, hey, I read your books and I'm here from such and such, and here I am. They, they assume they know you because you presented yourself through a uh, book and yet you don't know who they are. So there's this incredible right. talent. So anyway, I got this call from the uh, uh, publisher and she said, well, there's somebody, there's some woman who wants to talk to you. She says she represents some, uh, you know, some famous uh, artist and he wants to talk to you. Are you willing to do it? And I said, ah, oh, sure, I suppose. So I assumed it was uh, someone with no sense of boundaries and personal propriety. And so, uh, but, and she said, what's his name? And I said, what's his name? She said, it's Plant. And I said, you mean like Robert Plant, the Led Zeppelin guy? And she said, I don't know. So anyway, uh, I said, sure, let me talk to him. So I got his number. I called his uh, agent or representative. And it's an interesting Denver connection or Boulder connection because Robert had found neither wolf nor dog in Packard uh, Cover, which is one of the big bookstores in uh in Deadwood, it's one of the big bookstores in the country, one of the best independents. And he'd been looking for some reading on his tour and he'd come across neither wolf nor dog. And Robert had years before lived in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. And he had uh, been fascinated. He also had always been like most Europeans, they have a certain fascination with the Native experience, Native American experience. And he said, where are these Indians that I read about? Where are these people? Where, where is this fantastic culture? I knew nothing that I was read about. And I hear nothing about it. I see nothing about it. Once more, it's fun from the American historical and cultural narrative. So anyway, he found that book and apparently just loved it. So he, the, his representative said he was, uh, said, oh, he's reading it on the tour bus. We're in Philadelphia or something right now. And he's just reading it to everybody. And he wants to talk to you. Sure. Okay. And like I said, you know, I, I don't. I, I, egalitarian is, the, you know, sort of the way that I am. I, I you know, Robert Plant. That's fine. You know, Robert Plant, Joe Blow. It's all the same. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Robert and I get on the line, and uh, he said he just loved the book, and he said, "Well, will you be speaking anywhere in the near future?" I said, "Well, I'll be in South Dakota," and he said, "Well, maybe I'll pop out." Well, he did. I, mm-hmm. He shows up out there. We, we stayed in touch, and he and his uh, current girlfriend at the time came out to South Dakota where I was speaking. And um, I, you know, and I did my best to keep him hidden. That this is how ridiculous it was. So it was actually a Led Zeppelin tribute band playing in one of the uh, in in the concert <laughs> hall there. And I said, Robert, you want to go see? It? He said, Oh my God, no! Keep me away from this stuff. <laughs> and so. But so, you know, I tried very much to respect his privacy and, and wanted and didn't want to be slavishly, uh, you know, uh, sort of a sycophant saying, you know, tell me about rock stars. So mm-hmm. we talked instead about art. We talked about fatherhood. We talked about things of significance. And when I got done with my time at the South Dakota Festival of Books, I asked him if he had any spare time. And he said, yeah, we got a few days. And I said, well, how about if I take you to the Black Hills? and down onto the reservation, uh, the Pine Ridge Reservation. And so we did. We all traveled together. Um, It was a chance for him to see a part of the world he hadn't seen, probably one of the few parts of the world he hadn't seen. And we got to really enjoy each other. 
and also his girlfriend. It, it was a very wonderful experience. We ended up at Wounded Knee, which is the you know, uh, place of pivotal part in either wolf or dog, uh, on the blood moon uh, and the lunar eclipse. And it was a very powerful experience. And anyway, we, it was a, we really got to know and like each other as human beings. Uh, and so he loved the book, said, let me take it back to England with me. And he went back and found, uh, had some friends in the publishing industry and ended up handing it off to Canongate uh, Books, which is a you know, very well-known independent publisher there in uh, Britain. And they loved the book and decided to publish it. So they got the rights from the American publisher. Robert wrote an introduction, or actually a short sort of forward to it. And we published it in the, it got published in the UK. And uh, now here it is being republished with his introduction as a 25th anniversary yeah. edition. And uh, goes full circle, comes back to Denver. I can go into the tattered cover and say, you started this, this was yeah. your work. So anyway, <laughs> Robert and I, become, we've become pretty good friends. He doesn't have a lot of time, but went over and visited him. My wife and I went over and visited him. We spoke together at the Hay Festival in mm-hmm. Wales. And he, you know, and we've got, when he has concerts that I can go to, I'll go to his concerts here, and then we'll go out to lunch or something afterwards. So, and it, it's just, I find it fascinating because he's such, he's a very down-to-earth man. Uh, and how someone can go through the experience he went through. I mean, what would it be like to be able to go anywhere, do anything, have all the money you want? It's like you, you, know, you rub the magic lantern. You have everything. Right. Uh, how do you come out of the other side of that and be a decent human being? Right. But he did. He's, he's a, a grounded person. Um, I think having lost a son, uh, when I think his son was 12 or so and died, that and then his best friend was the the drummer in Led Zeppelin. And I think that gave him a grounding that made him a very human and approachable person. He still lives in his old hometown in uh, uh, in, in the Midlands in England. And uh, I just like him. I just like the guy. And we've had, we've had, some, we've had some good times. I mean, he, he's, he's almost like he's from a different planet than I am. Right. But uh, <laughs> in terms of our life experience. <clears throat> And and I learned things like you know as, as a writer you know here like I said I'm 73 and still pushing you know pushing the rock up the hill, and mm-hmm. he like he said you can't imagine what it's like to have your identity frozen in time when you were between 18 and 24 years old. That's right. all people think of him as. And watching him grow as a musician, he's very fascinated with uh, North African music now, and uh, he continues to grow as a musician. He and I share about art and music. And it, it's a very valued friendship. And it all came because of neither Wolf nor Dog. And, you know, um, I was reading just just recently the movie that was made uh, based on your book mm-hmm. is is getting a lot of popularity in the indie film circuit. And I remember I was um, watching an interview, uh, listening to an interview you did, where you talked about how you didn't want, when people approached you to make this book into a movie years ago, you don't want people to turn it into a Hollywood story about the white guy being the hero. What was the reason for you finally having someone turn this into a movie? Well, more than anything, it was his willingness to do it. Uh, the people that had taken it before uh, had ranged from uh, 
there was a, a pretty well-known B-list uh, director in Hollywood who wanted to do it, and there were several others who wanted to purchase the rights to it. Uh, they uh, they either couldn't get it made, or they they couldn't get financing, or in most cases, very often they would have someone say, uh, "We, you know, it doesn't have a strong uh, it doesn't have a strong hero, and, right. and that hero would be the white author." which is not what I wanted. The idea at best, uh, at minimum, would be an ensemble piece um, mm-hmm. where everyone was equal. Um, but I had, you know, I had just about given up. And actually what had happened is uh, there had been enough attempts to get it made that I'm sitting with the book. I'm sitting with a script that I had done. And uh, my son, and, and I wanted to see it made into a film. Uh, everyone said, because of the way that I write, uh, it's very visual. It's very sensory. It's you know, and it's very auditory. And I'm a sub vocalizer, so I write very. I write to be read slowly, just because I read slowly. And so the piece ended up having a lot of cinematic potential and good pacing. And I thought it would. Be. So many people contacted me and said it should be a film. It should be a film. So there I am sitting with this. And my son said to me one day, who's a young filmmaker, he said, Dad, you're going to die and that thing's never going to get made. And I'm going to have to make the damn thing. And I said, no, Nick, I'm going to get this thing made. So over the years, there have been three or four different people who had contacted me. uh, And I just wrote off to all of them, sort of an all-points bulletin, saying, any of you who are still interested, I'll get you the book and get you the script for nothing. And Mm -hmm. Stephen, the man that made it, uh, I had met in uh, in South Dakota on the Pine Ridge Reservation when I was out there. He had done a, a film called Res Mom. And he, he was showing it uh, in a little town, a little town of a couple hundred right off the reservation. I went to it, and I, I had handed him a copy of the book at that time. He and I both tended to stay in cheesy motels, and we were staying in the same motel. And he took the book, and uh, he never really, uh, I, that was all I'd heard of it. I, I had talked to him about it and said, you know, if you'd like to, if you're interested in making it, you seem to understand the reservation. And I know how hard it is to get things done there. People don't show up. Uh, you, you lose your actors. Uh, things, things just are very loose and fluid. And he said, I just go into the local convenience store, get someone, bring them on set. And if I need them, I use them and I get it done. And that impressed me because no one else had been able to get anything done with this. And very few people got anything done on the reservation. So he and I, uh, when I sent out that all points bulletin, he was one of the people I'd sent it to. Mm. And he wrote back to me and said, yeah, you know, I'll make this. I'll make it if, you know, uh, but, and the one thing I promise you is if I say I'm going to make it, I'm going to get it done. And he did. It, it, yeah. it, and but the, the magic of the whole thing was not it was in the man that he found to play Dan, this Dave right. Bald Eagle, this ninety-five-year-old mm-hmm. man, uh, and he Dave was uh, Lakota, he, he was a, you know, a native Lakota speaker. He he was born in the old ways, and so he had a character about him that was very you know, that that was not an actor. This was a man who was a legitimate Lakota elder, and he just he just owns the screen when he's on it. So Stephen put the film together. He did it very short time. I think it was 18 days, and uh, he, you know, and he cut a fine line through the middle of the book. You know, a book and a film are very different animals, uh, but he cut a very fine line through the center of it, building it on character, 
and didn't he he let the native people be the strong voices mm-hmm. and the man that played me was a uh, you know, interesting guy and i liked the guy a lot and he but very different in terms of temperament and character but he'd been a military man and he understood about not taking the lead in things but letting other people take the lead mm-hmm. and so he knew how to play the role and so that just you know serendipitously they came out with a very excellent little film and it's been making its way around the country and now it's making its way in europe and you know he said it's quite a wonderful experience yeah uh, you wrote a book uh, called Dancing with the Gods, which is right. uh, the story you wanted to tell to young artists and uh, to, to tell them about what it's like and to pretty, be a really positive book about what they go through. And uh, there was mm-hmm. a part I listened to about rejection. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on this thing. You said that, uh, paraphrasing you, it's, uh, you said that rejection is not a failure, but rather a wound a wound that requires healing. And I was wondering what you think would be for the listeners, because a lot of our listeners are, are artists, they're writers, and they're young. So what would you, in, in, in your experience, would be some of the ways in which artists and writers listening to this can learn how to heal themselves after rejection? Because writers have to do, you know, they have to deal mm-hmm, with it all the right. time. So what would you give us some sort of, you know, advice or wisdom about how to heal themselves from this wound? Well, I'll back up one step and say, you know, I mentioned about the role of the, taking the role of the elder seriously. This was my elder book. In most of my books, what I do is I say, come along with me and I'll, we'll look at the world together and I'll show you my, give you my insights in what it is that we're seeing together. In this book, it's, I decided, okay, it's time for me to turn and face my readers and speak mm-hmm. from uh, from authority. And I said, what can I speak about that is honest? And the fact that I'd worked with native or worked with artists, knew many artists, uh, Robert Plant being a good example, uh, in all genres and uh, all disciplines, said I can talk about the arts. So this book was really meant as my attempt to tell the young artist what it is that he or she is going to confront in in the course of a life in the arts. And rejection is always one of the hardest because a good artist in any field survives by empathy. And empathy means that you have a great sensitivity uh, to the responses of others, the feelings of others, you're constantly aware of what the outside world, the, the pressures and weights and values of the outside world. And when that's turned on you, it hurts because you've been so open and suddenly you take the rejection very, very personally. It, it's a terrible, it's, it's almost impossible to ever get over the feeling of rejection, but you cannot take it as a rejection of you as a person. Uh, that's the biggest thing that has to be learned that it there are so many reasons why your work is rejected it can be that the person is having a bad day it can be the person is just an unpleasant human being that likes to lord it over other people it can be that whatever your sensibilities are don't connect with them and it may be that what you've done uh didn't meet the highest level of your own standards or what it is that it uh, yet could be that you're still 
an artist in the shaping and in the making. But at no point is, is your art the same as what you are. I've often mm-hmm. said in the case of writing uh, that the second book is the hard one. Everyone's got a first book in them because that first book is them. It's mm-hmm. uh, on some level, it's, it's you pouring out what it is that you think the world needs to know. So right. when someone rejects that, they, they're rejecting you. They're saying, but you need to know, I don't care about it. So it's not until you get to the second book that you understand that, no, I'm, I am not equal. I'm in my work, but I am not the same as my work. And so when you're starting out, you're working on that first piece, that first painting, this first great, this great offering of self to the world. And when it turns on you, it's very hard not to take it personally and not to turn on the people that have turned on you. And by turning on them, if you, if you start rejecting those who reject you, you're closing yourself off to the possibility of future experience. You, know, you need to take, be able to take in everything from every possible direction. And so what I guess what I tell people is uh, don't take it personally. And, and that's easy to say. But you've got to accept the fact that what you're doing is you're offering a gift out there. Uh, you're creating something from nothing, uh, which is a very rare event. Not too many people in the world get to make the imagination into something real in the outside world. And no matter what the art form, and you have to accept that this is somehow, it's a calling. Uh, and don't take the hurts personally. Accept them and grieve them. That's the other thing is, is it is a death and a wound. So there is a process of grieving, but, and be willing to go through the grieving. Don't say it doesn't matter. Of course it matters. Don't say it doesn't hurt. Of course it hurts, but try to be present to the fact that uh, you've been given the gift of being a creator. Other people want to know what you have to say. And there's one person out there somewhere. You've got to, instead of looking at the person that's going to reject you, uh, Look for the one person who needs to hear what you have to say. Somewhere inside of you, your sensibilities are consonant and resonant with another person. And write for that person. Uh, that, I mean, I've often said that one of the great, hardest things about most people in the arts I know is that praise isn't important, but criticism kills. And okay. so that, that's yeah. a terrible imbalance, but it's the way it is. You know, someone can say, oh, your work's great. You say, yeah, thanks a lot. But if they say, you know, I didn't like that, then now suddenly you're twisted in knots. Yeah. Uh, it's developing a healthy scar tissue, but not letting it, it fester. Except the fact you're always going to be insecure. You're always going to be worried that your work isn't good enough. But it's an act of courage. It's an act of faith. And so create is an act of faith rather than an act of fear. I guess that's you know about the best I can say of that. Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. This podcast is produced by Launchora, a storytelling and creative learning platform, in association with Teamwork Arts, the producers of the Jepper Literature Festival. If you haven't already, do subscribe to our show wherever you're listening to this podcast. Ah.